Welcome to episode five of my new podcast, The End Your Pain, Live Again Show. In this episode, I'm going to pose a question to you that I'm sure millions of you are thinking about, but haven't really obtained a concrete answer to, and that is, why are you still in pain? Why are you still in pain? I'm sure for millions of you, you have had pain for a sustained period of time. You have sought care from multiple practitioners. You have tried multiple treatments. Many of you have unfortunately experienced surgeries that did nothing maybe even worsened your pain. Many of you have tried multiple forms of medication. Some have tried narcotic prescription medications, which are basically opioids or synthetic heroin. Some have tried things like gabapentin or Neurontin, which is an anti-seizure medication. Some have tried injections, epidural nerve blocks, cortisone shots. Some have tried radiofrequency ablation, which is cauterizing or burning of their nerves. You have put in unlimited amounts of effort to resolve your pain. You have put in unlimited levels of time to resolve your pain. For many of you, you have put in substantial amounts of cost to resolving your pain. And yet, here we are, months or years later, and you're still in pain. And for many of you, you have to be scratching your head. I'm sure for many of you, the horrible emotions associated with a level of pain that appears to be non-correctable has grown, whether it's hopelessness, anxiety, frustration, all the terrible emotions that go with along with the sense that maybe tomorrow is going to be exactly like today and the day after that is going to be exactly like today. It's a scary feeling. I understand that because I've treated thousands of people over the last 28 years. And many of those people had chronic pain and tried all the classic standard types of treatments and practitioners before they were fortunate enough to find the YAS method. So I understand how you're feeling. What I'm really trying to look at is the intellectual question try to move slightly away from the emotional attachment to the pain and try to analyze from a logical perspective, why are you still in pain? And if you're going to try to take a logical approach, you have to step back to the original question of what is pain and why do we have it? And the answer is that pain is an indication of a tissue in distress. Its purpose 
is to create conscious awareness of the distress of that tissue, that symptom, that pain is actually being elicited by the very tissue in distress. It does so to create conscious awareness of the distress so that an intervention can be provided and the distress of the tissue resolved. Once the distress of the tissue is resolved, then there's no need for that tissue to elicit that emergency distress signal. And it simply ceases and goes back to functioning normally. That's how the body works. That's always been how the body works. It doesn't matter what anyone tells you. It doesn't matter what people find on MRIs or x-rays. Ultimately, that's how the body works. So you got to go back to that concept. So you have pain. You seek care in Obtaining care initially, a diagnosis must be derived because without a diagnosis, how could you treat the symptom? So in deriving a diagnosis, the concept should be that we're trying to identify the tissue in distress that is eliciting the symptom. So your diagnosis must include a tissue. For instance, most people have heard of a kidney stone cirrhosis of the liver, mitral valve prolapse, within those diagnoses are tissues. So the symptoms that are associated with those tissues are why the person sought medical care and a combination of the understanding of the symptoms followed by confirmatory diagnostic testing is what led to the proper tissue in distress being identified and then the distress of that tissue resolved. How does it work when it comes to neck pain, back pain, or any type of extremity pain? The answer is you go right to a diagnostic test, an MRI in most cases, and a structural, uh, a structural variation is identified, a herniated disc, arthritis, stenosis, a pinched nerve, meniscal tear, any of the classic types of structural variations. And without any attempt to interpret your symptoms, which we already discussed is the core principle behind the connection between getting the right diagnosis and treating the right tissue so that the symptoms can be resolved, right? We said that the symptoms are being emitted by the tissue in distress. So you have to assume that each tissue creates very specific symptoms. You know that. You know that because if you have pain at the chest and the left arm, you assume that's indicating a heart attack, distress of the heart. Those specific symptoms are indicative of that tissue in distress. If you have ankle pain, you don't say, oh, I think I'm having a heart attack. Right? If your entire left side of your body goes dead, paralyzed, you don't say, hmm, I think that's a kidney stone. Or maybe I have pneumonia. You say, wow, my side of my body going dead is indicative of a, uh, of a stroke. My brain is in distress. Those are the symptoms of that being in distress. And it leads you to seek care for your brain. But that is completely ignored based on the overall global medical establishment. You know, if you've sought care, you're with the practitioner less than three minutes, long enough for them to say, where is your pain? Let me give you a prescription for an MRI. 
and come back. When we get the results, we'll discuss the cause of your pain and what we're going to do about it. You know that's what happens. That's the way it works. I've been doing this for 28 years. Everybody tells me the same story, regardless of the where they are in the world. So there is no attempt to interpret symptoms. And without the correlation of symptoms to the cause, you can't possibly be treating the right tissue, period. I don't care what the diagnosis, what the diagnostic test says. The diagnostic test is baseless, baseless. The scam of it is that you have back pain while a herniated disc is found. Therefore, it is asserted to be the cause of the pain because the herniated disc is found at the time you're having pain. Well, what if another tissue was creating that pain and you found the herniated disc at the same time? Isn't it just an independent variable? Isn't it obvious that there's a possibility that it cannot be the cause of the symptoms of the pain, especially when the pain is not where you would expect it to be if a herniated disc was to cause pain? How about the fact that as many people are found to have the same herniated discs or structural variations as those without with pain? The numbers are the same. Whether you have pain or don't have pain, in the same percentages, structural variations are identified. How, how do you account for that if these structural variations cause pain? You can take it a step farther. Would the MRI find that you have two elbows at the time you're having your lower back pain? Yes. So why can't we say having two elbows is the cause of your lower back pain? It's the same theoretical basis. You must be asking the question, why am I still in pain? Nobody in the medical establishment is going to say to you that the reason is because you've got the wrong diagnosis. Because they are dependent on diagnostic testing as the principal means of how they do what they do. The problem is, look at the evidence. Look at the empirical data. 130 million Americans, roughly 1 billion people suffering with chronic pain. Chronic pain has become so accepted that you don't even hear discussions about it anymore. It's gone. It is accepted that chronic pain and chronic illness are the same, synonymous. It's insane to make that statement. Chronic illness is deterioration of a tissue. Chronic pain is directly the result of the fact that a tissue is in distress. It has not been identified. Therefore, it continues to be in distress eliciting your symptoms. The concept of chronic pain is an oxymoron. You can't have chronic pain if the method of diagnosing is correct. Because when do the symptoms begin? At the inception of distress of the tissue. So if at that time you were to go to somebody capable of properly diagnosing what tissue is in distress, then the distress of that tissue should be resolved quickly. Therefore, the pain should never be more than acute, period. That's it. If you got the right diagnosis at the initial stage of seeking medical care or treatment, then the proper tissue should be able to be identified. The stress of that tissue should occur, and therefore it stops requiring to elicit the distress signal of pain. Done. So by definition, pain should never be more than acute. And yet, chronic pain exists globally. Why? Why are you still in pain? 
Why are you still in pain? Misdiagnosis. Misdiagnosis. You must see it that way. You must see it that way. The difficult thing for the average person is that they have such a belief in the fact that a global medical system has to be capable of understanding how to identify and treat their pain. And even those practicing within that establishment believe that they have the capacity. But what's the evidence say? Because that's what counts. Science is about evidence. And the evidence is that no one's getting the right diagnosis. So what you have to accept, which is a very difficult thing to accept, is that those that are treating you simply don't know what they don't know. It is not the individual's issue. It is their educational background and training that is the cause of the chronic pain epidemic. It doesn't matter where you are in the medical field, what your specialty is, what your credential is, as long as you believe that diagnostics and diagnoses derived from diagnostic tests is the primary mechanism for identifying and treating pain, you are basically, I hate to say it, but giving a death sentence to those trying to seek care and have their pain resolved. It's just reality. And I was educated in that way. I went to physical therapy school 28 years ago. But because I went back to school at 30 years old and because I had a incredibly ingrained understanding of logical analysis, I was not the typical student. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid. I was willing to say, no, this makes no sense. It is baseless. And from the very beginning, I was recognizing that those that I was treating, I would look at their symptoms because to me, it made the most sense to say that if a tissue is in distress, it's going to elicit quite specific symptoms. So the only way to identify the tissue was to interpret those symptoms. And so that was my focus. I would, the person would come in with the prescription, let's say for a meniscal tear in the knee. And then I would simply say, where's your pain? Point to your pain. Show me where your pain is. What brings on your pain? What makes your pain go away? And I would try to evaluate everything the person told me. And from there, I would say, wait a second. If a meniscal tear was to cause pain, it would have to cause pain at the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. That is known as the joint line. And so I would press on the joint line and the person would say, nope. I don't feel any pain. I don't feel you increase my pain. I don't feel anything. And yet when they would describe where their symptoms were, what bring on the symptoms, the fact that they connected it to some sort of dysfunction, they couldn't do something because the pain was brought on. And I would feel, let's say, where a muscle attaches to the lower leg bone, which is about two inches below the joint line. And I would press on that spot and I could make the person go through the roof well, that was evidence clearly that whatever that meniscal tear that was found couldn't be causing the pain because the symptom that the person was experiencing was not where it should be if a meniscal tear caused pain, period, man. That's the way this works. The person is told they have stenosis, a herniated disc, pinched nerve, and yet their pain is three inches to the right of the spinal column in the lower back. I press on the spot three inches over 
and they go through the roof. It turns out I'm pressing on the lower back muscle called the quadratus lumborum, a muscle that supports them. They mentioned that if they sit for a while and they try to stand up, they have pain. Well, that would mean that the muscle shortens when they sit. And when they try to stand up, it's not ready to lengthen fully. So it's going to emit pain. If it was a herniated disc stenosis, a pinched nerve, that would mean, because the pain is three inches off to the side, that that symptom must be referred. So if you wanted to create a symptom that supposedly was coming from a pinched nerve, stenosis, or a herniated disc, you'd have to press on the spine. So you could press on that person's spine from here to eternity. Nothing happens. I press three inches off to the spine in the spot where they're having the pain. Boom, it brings on the pain. That is an indication of something called point tender pain. So I just proved irrefutably, based on the interpretation of the person's symptoms, what the person's body is presenting to me, that there's no possible way that the finding of the herniated disc, the stenosis, or the pinched nerve is, in fact, what is creating the symptom. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying that it is independent. So all the treatment in the world relating to that was never going to resolve the symptoms. You needed to identify the fact that the tissue in distress was the QL, quadratus lumborum. Then you have to understand what was the muscular deficit associated with its straining and illicit pain. Then you resolved the strength deficits, and voila, within a couple of treatments, the person doesn't have lower back pain anymore. Now, here's the question I would have for you. Does that mean that I resolved the herniated disc, pinched nerve, or stenosis? The answer is no. Of course, it still exists, but who gives a shit? If it's not eliciting pain, what are you worried about? And that's the big jump that you must come to. If you're questioning why you're still in pain, and you're coming to the realization that it is most likely that you've gotten the wrong diagnosis, then the thing that you want to try to understand is that those diagnoses that are being given are structural variations, structural abnormalities, things that used to look a certain way and don't look the same. Well, is there something external that would be an equivalent example of that? The answer is yes. The answer is a wrinkle. So let's say that you have a wrinkle on your face. Do you immediately go and get a skin graft? I don't think anybody would think that. Why? It's a structural abnormality. Clearly, the skin doesn't look the same as it used to. But because you have come to the recognition that although there's a wrinkle, the quality of the skin is still intact. Its integrity is still intact. What is the purpose of the skin? To prevent antigens from entering the body. Does that change if the skin becomes wrinkled? Of course not. It still protects you. So therefore, you can have a structural variation that does not require an intervention. Arthritis, the pinched nerves, the nose, all these things that for the last 40 years have been identified as causing your pain are no different than a wrinkle. Now, the medical establishment would have you believe it's not like a wrinkle, it's more like cancer. And therefore, the mere identification of the structural variation warrants some sort of intervention. Absolute and utter bullshit. How do you know that for sure? Look at the scientific evidence. Look at the scientific evidence. So if you want to take it from a historical perspective, 
Postmortem studies in the 1950s showed that 40% of the population had herniated discs. Well, I don't understand. If herniated discs cause pain, where was the chronic pain epidemic from the 1950s? It didn't exist. Right? Look at it from the perspective of the theoretical basis of how, and this is how science works, a hypothesis and a null hypothesis. So the hypothesis is herniated disc cause pain, right? Well, if that's true, then for that to be true, the null hypothesis must also be true. What is the null hypothesis? If herniated disc cause pain, it should say those people who don't have pain don't have herniated discs. So both of those must be correct for it to be theoretically correct that herniated disc cause pain. Well, 1994, the first study is done on people with lower back pain. And it shows 70% of the population have bulging or degenerative, uh, bulging or herniated discs. So if the null hypothesis doesn't work, then the hypothesis must be wrong. That's science. It's undeniable. It's the way science works. Let's look at it from a surgical perspective. So they've been saying this is the cause of pain and they've tried to treat it over the last 40 years. The failure rate for back surgery is somewhere between 70 and 80%. The medical establishment creates the diagnosis failed back surgery syndrome. Failed back surgery syndrome. That is a diagnosis given to somebody who had a symptom post pre-surgery and has the same exact symptom post-surgery. And think about the diagnosis. I don't give the diagnosis. The surgeon gives the diagnosis. Think about the diagnosis. Failed back surgery syndrome. It is to say that the surgery failed you're still having the symptom and the word syndrome implies they don't know what is causing the symptom. That's what the word syndrome means. It's a group of symptoms without an etiology. So you're now being treated by a person willing to identify you with the diagnosis of I did a surgery on you. You still have the same symptoms and I don't know what's causing it. And yet they still want you to be treated. How about the opioid? crisis. What do you think brought that on? You'll hear lots of people say, well, it's all about 18-year-olds trying to find an alternative means of getting street heroin. Well, if that's true, if that was the cause of the opioid crisis, then the answer should be, when would you expect the opioid crisis to have occurred, right? When demand was at the highest. Well, when what decade was demand for heroin at the highest? The 1960s. Okay, well, if heroin used by 18-year-olds was at the height of the 1960s, okay, so where was the opioid crisis? Where was the desire of pharmaceutical companies to develop opioids if that's what the cause was? The answer is it's not the cause, clearly not. There wasn't even remotely enough of demand. You needed to get people to have pain. You needed to treat them for the wrong tissues, thereby creating chronic pain leading to a demand, not just of 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds, but people into their 90s. And sure enough, I've treated people into their 90s addicted to prescription pain medication. For God's sakes, it's synthetic heroin. Right? When did the opioid crisis occur? In the beginnings to the middle of the 1990s. When did the chronic pain crisis begin? The late 80s, early into the middle, uh, the, the early 90s. One followed the other. And more scary, 
What do you learn about the opioid crisis? Did it resolve the issue of chronic pain? No, it didn't, which tells you that even attempting to mask the symptom did nothing to reduce the number of people and the intensity of pain being experienced. You have to recognize, you've got to be willing to say, this is very tough. This is very tough for someone to look at themselves and be honest with themselves and say, why am I still in chronic pain after everything I've done? No one is denying this is very hard. All I'm saying is that if you finally want to get on the road to resolving your pain, you have to ask yourself this question. And if the answer is that I have been misdiagnosed and I'm willing to accept that the person that I'm treating simply doesn't know what they don't know, then you are finally going to get on the path to resolving your pain. That's where the YAS method comes in. So as I said, I went to physical therapy school and recognized that it was baseless. I believed that the proper path to diagnosing and treating evolved around interpreting a person's symptoms to understand what tissue is in distress eliciting that symptom. So whether it's a bone, a muscle, or a nerve, or even organs, every tissue creates specific symptoms. So if I could interpret the symptoms, I could then establish what tissues in distress. And what I found was that in greater than 98% of cases, the cause of pain is muscular. 98% of cases. Why now? Why chronic pain now? And the answer is in the 1980s, technology got so advanced that people stopped doing manual types of jobs. The number one job today is IT related. People sit for 10, 12 hours at a day, right? Where they used to do physical labor, they don't. In terms of the types of activities people do, God, you want to understand the child obesity issue, stop looking at the foods. Look at the fact that when I was young, we went out and played football. Now, Every kid on the planet plays Madden NFL football virtually with their fingers. And you wonder why these kids are overweight. They're not expending any energy. Well, the same thing holds true for adults of all ages. If you don't use your muscles, they will weaken. Just a fact, irrefutable fact. So when you go and you try to do something, now you strain your muscles, elicit pain, and there you go. Do muscular causes show up on diagnostic tests? The answer is no. Are any medical specialties educated or trained to identify muscular causes? The answer is no. So there you have it. So if you've decided by listening to this, it makes sense that the YAS method is the proper mechanism for diagnosing and treating your pain by simply performing a physical evaluation to understand your symptoms and then confirm whether it's muscular or structural. And as I said, more than 98% of cases is going to be muscular, which then allows you to be able to identify the muscles responsible for the symptoms and allows you to perform the proper exercises using progressive resistance to cause the muscles to get to become stronger to the point where their force outputs are greater than the force requirements of your activities, thereby allowing you to resolve your pain, and achieve a fully functional life. If this is making sense to you and you want to contact me, by all means, do so by contacting me 
at my email address, drmitch at mitchellyas.com, drmitch at mitchellyas.com, D-R-M-I-T-C-H at M-I-T-C-H-L-L-Y-A-S-S.com. I'll have this in the description of the video of this podcast. Um, if you think that you would like to take this step and move ahead and actually create an appointment for a YAS method virtual session, which is fantastic. I think most people believe that the only way to really resolve their pain is to see someone in person. I happen to be in Jacksonville, Florida. If you happen to be in the area and you want an in-person session, by all means. But it is certainly not necessary. I've been using Skype before there was even Zoom to do virtual sessions for years. And now I do use Zoom and they're highly effective. I've treated people internationally and it is a tremendous mechanism. The physical evaluation can still be performed properly and effectively through the system. You can be shown how to do the proper exercises and have you perform the exercises under my supervision. And the great news is that the sessions are videotaped. So you have that going forward as a way of referencing to make sure you're doing things correctly. You don't get that when you go to physical therapy or other forms of treatment, right? It's simply left up to you to somehow m remember how to do it or you that you're told you need to be with that individual. That's nonsense. You can learn how to perform these exercises properly and through the reference of a videotape, make sure that you do it correctly, make sure you understand how to strengthen your muscles and that's what you do. So. If you decide that that's the direction you want to take, you can go to my website, www.livewithoutpainsplural.com slash sessions, www.livewithoutpains.com slash sessions. And you could get on the website and make a appointment for a YAS method Zoom session. So if all of that sounds good, then...